And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, June 30th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, what do people really mean when they say government should operate like a business? Plus, VA's Inspector General has become an enduring presence among IGs. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, improving the quality of life and careers for women soldiers. That's the goal of a new Army advisory group advocating for them. The Women's Initiative team will hold its first meeting in August. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lord joins me with details. And Alex, let's begin with why is there a need for another group to advise about women's issues in the Army? It's an interesting question, Tom, because the services do come up with initiatives to support women. Last year, the Army issued a directive that addressed issues for pregnant and postpartum women that delayed physical fitness tests for a year after a woman had had a baby and eased up some travel possibilities for them, too, so they wouldn't have to travel right after having a baby. And actually, one of the inspirations for both that directive and this women initiative team is a Facebook group called the Army Mom Life. And a young sergeant started this group, and it really caught on with people. There were a whole lot of women following it on Facebook, commenting not on it, getting support from it. And that idea got to some of the uh, top brass in the Army, and it was suggested that they start this group. Here's Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army, Jeffrey Angers, who's one of the tri-chairs of this group. You know, the Army, as you realize is, I'll call it, dominated at least in numbers um, by men. I think it's about 16% of the total force is women, or the active force, I should say, are women. So I think there are times where when we develop policies and procedures, while we we try to consider the unique um, circumstances of our women soldiers, we don't always do a great job doing it. All right, that's what a high-level guy says about it. But what is the makeup of the group? I presume there's some women connected to it too, right, Alex? (laughs) That's a good point, Tom. There are actually three chair people. Angers is one, and then there's a general officer and a sergeant major. Both of them actually are female. Uh, Last December, they asked people to apply to be on this team, and they got over 800 applications. They they filled 30 seats for the start in August, and they're coming from all across the Army. There's National Guard component, active duty, reserves, and so all across the service, plus some civilians. Here's what Jeffrey Angers had to say about it. If you look at what our membership is, and it's representatives from junior enlisted soldiers, all the way up to more senior officers. And I I think our our initial plan going in is we'll develop working groups and the WIT as a group will decide what are the priorities they want to work on with help and guidance from both the MNRA and the tri-chairs. But I think our expectation is that some of these initiatives will span um, the entire spectrum that you you address. And do they have an agenda yet? Because... Alex, you said they started out as a Facebook group, or that's what inspired it, moms in the Army or that idea. So is it mostly about family life or is it mostly about soldier life or what's the initial thinking for this group? 
I ask that question, and it seems to be two-pronged. One is definitely women's health issues and women's quality of life issues. One interesting story Mr. Angers told me is that they talked about having a no-salute zone outside of child care centers. Because if you're a, an army mom and you've got your baby carrier and you've got your diaper bag, you don't want to have to be saluting someone as you walk in. And drop the baby. And drop the baby. Uh, the other issue which they plan to get into is career paths. And so it's sort of younger women maybe have more concerns about child care and, and young children, and maybe older women who are mid-career have more questions and, and more issues to resolve involving career paths. And while it's while what their agenda will be is still open, they're planning on looking at all of those kinds of issues. Here's Jeffrey Angers. We really want this to be a grassroots effort, which allows folks and representatives, as I said, from across the Army to help us identify the issues that are important to them and do everything from identify these issues, conduct the analysis, make the recommendations to Army senior leadership on what they think should change in the Army. And he points out what I think is a little bit of a danger for this group because it was grassroots. It was Facebook. People felt honest and they could express themselves freely. Once something gets elevated to an official Army advisory group, you become part of the Army bureaucratic process, and that could maybe work against the spontaneity they need to come up with things. So what happens to this group after they do have an agenda? How's it going to work next? That's a great question. And what he was telling me is that they have enough senior sponsorship on the program that these ideas aren't just going to fall into a hole someplace like like the Lost Ark in Indiana Jones. They're actually going to go up the chain of command and be turned into policy, and they'll get the secretary involved when they need to. Angers brought this up in the interview. So we will develop these recommendations. We will develop, I'll call it decision packages for senior leadership where we make the recommendations. These will be, you know, go through the ASA MRA where she will obviously have the, the opportunity to provide her input and then it will go to senior leadership depending on what level of approval we will need. All right. So it's going to meet in August and the membership has been named. And just to be clear, this is about Army soldiers who are women and not military spouses necessarily who are women. This group is directed specifically at Army soldiers, and the people on the board will serve about two years. They can be extended at the discretion of the chairman, but the idea is kind of to bring in a group, get some fresh ideas, and then maybe rotate them out after a couple years. Because the Army has a persistent, maybe not a giant problem, but a persistent one, and it's certainly big enough to those that get involved, and that is sexual harassment, sexual assault occurring in the Army. And uh, the IG recently pointed out that they have many studies of this pro of this issue, but not a lot of action has come out of it. Did did you get the sense that that topic, sexual assault, sexual harassment, will be part of this group? I asked about that, and what Mr. Anger said is that it very well could be, and if they they feel like they can maybe get some something done in that, they'll definitely address it, but that that is a sharp issue and it has its own channel for addressing that as sure. well. So this will be more quality of life issues, like you say, saluting when you're holding a baby and coming out of a daycare center. Well, you know, maybe that's not so important to the readiness and composure and uh, discipline of the Army. Right. Things that you sort of are uniquely women's issues that they might have a perspective on that someone else might not notice. Well, we want the best for everyone who serves. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Thanks so much. 
Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, VA's Inspector General has become an enduring presence among IGs. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. After seven years on the job, Michael Missile is one of the senior inspectors general. He joined Veterans Affairs as IG early in the second Obama administration, and he joins me now with a progress report. So IGs that last three administrations so far, uh, that's quite a record. Well, thanks, Tom. It's great to be here, and it's uh, truly a, an honor and a privilege to be able to serve as an inspector general. I want to start with something very specific, and that is the Electronic Health Record Project. This has been, let's say, problematic for VA, and there's really no end in sight. From the standpoint of the IG, and I know you have people working on this specifically, but what do you think is the prognosis here? Well, just as a little background, the Electronic Health Records contract, as you point out, is one of the most significant contracts in VA history. It's signed as a 10-year, $16 billion contract, although recent estimates are going to be much higher. It's going to have an incredible impact on the quality of healthcare. So as a result, we've been looking at this very proactively, not waiting for them to finish the implementation, but really at the, the front end. VA has gone live at five sites, five of the medical facilities, and we've already issued 14 reports on the implementation, and we've identified a number of concerns. The implementation has been stalled, delayed. VA has said we're not going to go forward until we can fix the problems that have been identified. We made a total of 68 recommendations. 23 are currently open, and we're currently working on four more reports that should be issued in the next few months. One of them involves the many outages and degradation of services at the five facilities. So we'll have information on root cause and and more on what happened there. And there's been a lot of discontinuities in people in this particular project. First of all, the primary contractor was acquired. And then I guess Oracle scrambled some of its jets to try to salvage the thing because it was really badly off course. And then the leadership of the program within VA seems to be constantly revolving. Do you think that's an issue? That's always an issue. You know, in, in all of our work, we look at leadership and anytime there's change in leadership, or you don't have stability of leadership, it typically leads to problems and more challenges in getting the job done. I mean, do you get the sense that the problems drove out successive leaders of this project? Or, you know, was it the other way around that the leaders said, forget about this, I'm never going to win here and moved on? I think everyone has its, its own story. But the bottom line is stability of leadership is critically important for any project to succeed. And that gets to the larger question in seven years of looking at VA. I mean, what's your overall sense? The external people to VA consider it a pretty well-functioning organization in its ability to deliver health care to veterans at that one-to-one level. But yet at the administrative, financial level, you know, it's a big bureaucracy and it has the problems of big, big bureaucracies. Yes. VA is the second largest federal agency It has over 440,000 employees. It's got a budget of over $320 billion now. I mean, it's just a huge, complex organization involved in in such difficult tasks such as providing quality and timely health care. 
and then benefits to millions of veterans. So there's always going to be issues. There's always going to be ways to improve. And that's what I consider one of our most important functions, which is to help VA improve the services and benefits that they provide to veterans and their families. But I mean, the signals that you have gotten as VA and overseeing, as IG and overseeing all of the, I mean, you've got a thousand employees. Does the organization, it tries, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. You know, like, on health, let's talk about health care. You know, for the most part, VA provides quality health care in a timely basis. However, our oversight work, and just for health care, we have over 250 healthcare professionals doing that oversight inspections. We found a number of deficiencies in two areas where I think it's really critical for VA to improve. Uh, one is coordination of care. You know, we're finding breakdowns in the coordination, which leads to quality of care issues. It's also given that more veterans are getting care in the community, meaning non-VA providers are providing services to veterans, and the PACT Act, which is one of the largest increases in enrollment for VA healthcare for those exposed to toxic exposures, makes that coordination of care issue that much more challenging. Second one is suicide prevention. Suicide prevention is VA's number one clinical priority. Tragically, at least 17 veterans a day die by suicide. And we have seen lapses in basic suicide prevention measures, such as comprehensive suicide screening. So in all of these areas, we provide recommendations on how VA can improve, and they typically take our recommendations seriously, and I believe it does improve the health care for veterans. We're speaking with Michael Missel. He is Inspector General of the Veterans Affairs Department, and I'm recalling one interview we had a few years ago when you did an emergency report on dire conditions at the VA Medical Center in Washington, D.C. But then over the years, I mean, regularly, your staff does inspections of large VAMCs. I'm wondering in the aggregate, those inspections, what are the trends? What are the common elements or deficiencies that might cross the system? Because every particular center has its own particular localized issues. Sure. And so we do a regular inspection of all the VA medical centers. There's about 170 VA medical centers with clinics attached to them. So there's about 1,200 places where veterans can get healthcare services. So on about a three-year cycle, we're doing inspections of those facilities. And we really focus on five areas, which we think are really key to quality healthcare. One is leadership. As I previously talked about, leadership is so critical to a well-running organization. Another is quality, safety, and value, making sure that VA is not only providing quality health care, but they have systems in place to ensure that is happening. Medical staff privileging, ensuring that the right people are getting privileges, that they have the appropriate licenses. Environment of care, we literally walk around facilities checking to see for cleanliness and making sure that they are the appropriate facilities in terms of the, the care they're providing. And then the last one, I talked about already is suicide prevention. I can't talk enough about how important this is and how we're helping VA improve the way they are providing suicide prevention services and health and mental health care services. And how well do these medical centers and the medical staff, and especially in the area of suicide prevention, coordinate and collaborate and get information from the Defense Department from which all veterans ultimately emanate? That's a challenge. In fact, just yesterday, we put out a report about opioid use 
and service members who had opioid use issues and does it then carry does the care then carry over to VA and we found real gaps in that the VA wasn't aware of the uh, services that were provided when they were in the military and that of course then it's a and coordination of care issue causes real issues. So I think there are ways that the transition from the military to VA can clearly be improved. Because there would be some inconsistency there otherwise, because VA knows that everything it gets from a care standpoint, it inherited from the military. Hearing loss, for example, you know, a common occurrence for people that regularly fire howitzers or something or shoulder-mounted bazookas, this kind of thing, they have hearing loss. So you would expect maybe VA to be alert to that phenomenon across the possible health outcomes. And that's one of the theories behind the electronic health records transition, which is they want one health care record so that when a service member is in the military that their health records from the military then convert over to VA. Currently, that doesn't occur. And so if this can be successful, there clearly would be benefits for veterans. And just a detailed question, you have recently completed a report about the VAMC in the Philippines. I didn't know they had one over there. How does that compare to the stateside medical facilities? So we did an inspection. VA has one medical facility outside the U.S. It's in Pasay City in the Philippines, which is outside Manila. They serve about 7,000 veterans who live in the Philippines. It's an outpatient clinic. They do primary care, mental health services, and they do some specialty care. And so like all other VA facilities, we do a regular inspection. We just published our report on Pasay City a couple of weeks ago. We identified a couple of issues where they can improve, but for the most part, it's a very well-functioning facility. And by the way, does the secretary ever get over there to check it out? I don't believe this secretary has been there yet, but the previous secretary did visit the, the facility. And in your years as inspector general, I'm counting, there's probably been five VA secretaries. There actually have been seven people in my seven years who've either been the secretary or the acting secretary. Okay. What's your assessment and how do they relate to the IG's office? Because that can be both cooperative and also maybe a little headbutting. There always is some tension there. It's a natural tension because of the oversight work that we do. But I find that with all the people in that chair, they've uh, recognized our independence and they've provided the support that is really necessary for us to do our job. And let's talk about the staffing of the VA's Office of Inspector General itself. It's a large staff. It's bigger than some small agencies at 1,000 people, roughly. What have been your human capital requirements, and how are you able to keep it fully staffed? We have such an important mission that we're able to attract and retain really outstanding candidates. And in any organization... It's all about your people, and we have an incredibly talented, experienced, and dedicated staff. And so right now, when we put out a job opening, we put them out on USA Jobs. We get lots of applications and resumes, and as I said, we, we see a lot of really talented people that apply for jobs here. Are you looking for financial acumen? Uh, sociology could be there. Medicine knowledge. I mean, the range of knowledges that you would need in a specialized agency that also has gigantic finance, information technology, and personnel 
challenges. It also does medicine, highly specialized. That seems like a like a wide range of things a given person would need to know. So do you look for specialists? Absolutely. So given, as you point out, VA is so large, so complex, there's so much to, to do oversight. We really are looking for people with a variety of education, background, skill sets. So just on healthcare alone, we have about 250 healthcare professionals in our healthcare inspection group. Each one has lots of initials after their name, some MD for the uh, the kind of work they do. We also have criminal investigators. We also have performance auditors. We also have a number of lawyers doing special reviews and other areas of work. So yes, everybody in our organization, you know, is really well qualified to do the job. We're speaking with Michael Missel. He is Inspector General of the Veterans Affairs Department. One of the areas I've investigated a lot, so to speak, through a series of interviews is the research function at VA, which is not as well known to the general public. It's certainly very well known in medical circles, you know, outside of the VA. What's your assessment of their efficiency and economy and and general output for the inputs that they get? Well, VA's research function has really brought a lot of great improvements and breakthroughs for healthcare across the country. You know, VA has a lot of different functions, and one of them is its research function. And so we've looked at it on occasion, and we found for the most part, they're really providing great value. There's always room for improvement, and we've made the necessary recommendations, and VA has improved as they've implemented those recommendations. And we've been talking about Veterans Health Administration for most of the interview, but there's also the Veterans Benefits Administration, which would be a big agency in and of itself. And they've had issues with backlogs, and then when they get through those, you know, some new law like the PACT Act dumps a whole brand new issuance of claims and so forth, and lots of people that had not had claims have them now, you know, in the millions. What's your assessment of how VBA is navigating, you know, the last few years? Well, they certainly have seen this issue coming, as you point out, the PACT Act, which may be the largest expansion of VA benefits in the history of the agency. They prepared for it. They currently are doing a lot of things to ensure that the veterans are getting benefits in a timely basis, that the benefits are correct. We've increased our oversight work, been very proactive in looking at PACDAC, and VBA has been great in terms of providing us information on what they're doing and, and their plans. And I meet regularly with senior leadership from VBA to ensure we're uh, currently informed on the issues. And how do you coordinate with the Government Accountability Office or do you coordinate? They get their orders from Congress and they look at VA regularly also. I'm always curious as to how the IGs and the GAO people either butt heads or coordinate or say, well, we're going to look at that. You don't need to, et cetera. So that's that's a great question because you're right. The GAO and IGs have overlapping jurisdiction on many of the areas. I feel it's critically important that we coordinate very closely with them because, you know, given that there's so much oversight work that can be done, I want to make sure it's as effective and impactful as possible. 
So I meet with Gene Dodaro, the Comptroller General, the head of GAO on a regular basis to talk about priorities and strategic issues. And our staffs meet on a very regular basis to talk about what they're doing, what we're doing, to making sure we're not doing the same issues. And then we work closely together to share information, which helps both of our oversight efforts. And you've worked in a number of federal domains in your career, you know, private law, but also other areas of the government. And there's this group called SIGI, the Council on Inspectors General for Integrity and Efficiency. And, you know, that group has even had a few challenges because there have been some challenged IGs. IGs are like priests and rabbis. You know, not all of them are exactly examples of rectitude, but that's because they're human beings. What's your sense of the strength of the SIGI community at this point? Because it's been through some tough times and been through some pretty good times. I think SIGI is a really important organization. There are 74 federal IGs, about half are appointed by the president, the other half are appointed by agency heads. SIGI, you know, helps share information, best practices, coordinate. I'm involved with SIGI in a lot of levels, including as the chair of the SIGI Investigations Committee, which helps coordinate the law enforcement efforts. There's about 3,500 law enforcement officials at various IGs. And so we ensure that we're all kept up to speed on current developments, training, et cetera. And so you're one of the law enforcement inspectors general. There's about 50 IGs that have law enforcement authorities. And so I help lead that effort, although I'm involved in all the issues that SIGI gets involved in. Well, that just leads to a kind of a tail question here, and that is VA has a police force at its facilities. And have you looked at that one? Because I don't think people realize that there's dedicated Veterans Affairs Police Department, I think it's called, right? Yeah, VA has one of the largest federal police forces out there that ensures that the many thousands of VA facilities are kept safe. So we've issued over the years a number of different reports about the effectiveness of the VA police. One of the issues that we've identified uh, is their governance structure. It's a pretty decentralized system. Like, for instance, the VA chief of police does not have authority over the various police departments at facilities. So we've identified that as an issue for VA to look at to determine how best to organize their police operations. And is that something that can be rectified at the secretary's level, or does that require some congressional intervention, do you think? Now, that could be rectified within VA, and they are uh, working through and have made improvements in the area, but I think there's more to be done. So for those that might get appointed to an IG post, not modified, but the inspector general post in the future, what's your best advice for new IGs? Our advice for new IGs is really get to know the agency that you're conducting oversight of. Make sure you have good relations with the senior leadership, even though we're independent. They don't tell us what to do. Uh, It's really important to make sure you understand their priorities and strategies and then hire the very best people in the IG's office. If you don't have great staff, it's really going to be difficult to do this really difficult job that we have. And are all your people back at the office or are you one of these hybrid mode situations? It really depends. Myself, my deputy, all the senior leaders are pretty much back every day. I've not teleworked one day. I've been in the office every day throughout. And it really depends on the status of the individual. We do a lot of site work. So even if they're not in the office, 
They may be at a, a VA facility. Michael Missel is Inspector General of the Veterans Affairs Department. As always, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Tom, for having me. Happy to come back anytime. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your shows. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. When the nearly endless debates over the debt ceiling were raging on, the United States didn't look very businesslike to the rest of the world. Internally, though, you never stop hearing that federal agencies should operate more like a business. This is both true and not true, according to my next guest. Commentary now from American University professor Bob Tobias. Somehow at these times when things are stressful on the political front or whatever, people turn to federal agencies like the IRS, for example, and it should be like a business or it has too much money or this, that or the other. Your thoughts? Well, Tom, you know... We hear often, as you suggest, that we should run the government like a business that's both entrepreneurial, that's willing to challenge itself to change, and most importantly, measure its result. But from my perspective, the same people who make that challenge make achieving that challenge difficult, if not impossible. And I say this because a business can calculate its revenue and can plan its spending before the beginning of each year. Now, the budget year for agencies is October 1, but Congress has completed its agency appropriation process on October 1 just four times in the last 40 years, and the last time was in 1996. And what that means is that the agency has planned its spending over a 12-month period and gets maybe 11 or 10 or nine months to spend. So it has to rearrange everything, rush much, and from my perspective, achieve much less because of this failure to provide money on time. Yes, and there's a corollary there because when you don't have the money, you can't initiate any new programs for the most part under continuing resolutions. So that compresses not only the spending time, but in the time you would have to execute something that you planned to have a year to execute, you may have six months to do it. Well, that's true, Tom. And it makes it even more difficult because most appropriations are only for one year. So if you don't spend it by the end of the year, if you don't plan to spend it by the end of the year, you lose it and it goes back to the treasury. You know, this year is no different. The agencies have submitted their 2024 budgets, and the debt ceiling deal says now, for sure, every single budget is going to be cut by 1%. But as soon as the ink was dry on the debt ceiling deal, Congress said, well, no, we didn't really mean 1%. It could be much more than 1%. And by the by, we're thinking about shutdowns. So again, there's such uncertainty. And also, when you think about run it like a business, no business that was facing a budget cut would do across the board spending cuts. They would spend less on those who are less efficient and more on those who are more efficient. But in today's budget climate, across the board, except for VA and DOD, implementing the number one charge from Congress about agency is innovate, buy more technology, implement more technology. But think about that, Tom. If I'm going to define what I need, if I'm going to bid 
if I'm going to then decide and then I'm going to implement, I can't get that done in a year. I just can't get it done in a year. So if in year one, I have $100 and in year two, I only have 90, I have to make a choice. Do I continue with this this technology or do I let it fail and, and call it all off? It's easier for an agency not to do large technology reforms because of the uncertainty of the budget process. Running the government like a business is, I think, virtually impossible. And we can see the impact of budget uncertainty and its adverse impact if we look at the IRS. We're speaking with Bob Tobias. He's a professor in the key executive leadership program at American University. And yes, tell us more about your thoughts on the IRS, because so much of what people bring in their perception of how government ought to be, it all seems to come to bear in the crucible of the IRS sometimes. Yeah, I think that's right, Tom. Congress recently appropriated $100 billion, no small amount, over a 10-year period to increase IRS's technology, have better customer service, and to conduct more audits on those making more than $400,000 a year. The Congress also directed the IRS to develop and implement a free tax filing system, which would make tax filing free for those who have primarily W-2 income. It would be a tremendously valuable public service for those who make less and have the highest voluntary tax compliance rate. But during the recent debt ceiling deal, Congress cut IRS funds by $1.48 billion this year, and in 2024, $10 billion, and in 2025, another $10 billion, which in the first instance threatens the IRS ability to develop and implement the free tax filing system. But this series of events also reveals Congress doing exactly the opposite of what any private sector business, large or small, would do, and that is to cut its revenue source. A team of researchers at Harvard, the University of Sydney, and the Treasury Department looked at 710,000 tax returns over a 14-year period to determine the cost of conducting taxpayer audits and to determine the amounts taxpayers should have paid but didn't. So interestingly enough, they found that the bottom one half of taxpayers break even, the IRS breaks even when they're audited. So every dollar spent, the IRS gets nothing in return. But for the top 1%, the IRS got $3.18 back for every $1 spent And for the top tenth of 1%, the return is $6.29 for every dollar spent. But this report also did something that no one else has really done well, and that is to calculate the additional contribution that comes to the federal government from taxpayers who are audited. And they found that over the 14 years of the study, the additional tax paid by audited taxpayers, on average, was three times the revenue raised from the initial audit. And they found this impact to be exactly the same over every audited taxpayer. So audits, plus the deterrence effect for the top 10 of 1% of taxpayer, is a return of $12 for each dollar expended. So since the IRS is using the original 
a hundred billion dollar investment to focus only on those making more than four hundred thousand dollars a year, which is close to the top percentile. The twenty billion dollar cut in IRS funding is projected by this group to cost the federal government about two hundred and twenty billion dollars. Two hundred and twenty billion dollars. Who knows whether it's plus or minus ten billion or twenty billion. But what's important is who would leave the money on the table? No business would leave the money on the table. Well, yes, and maybe the bigger issue is if you had a tax code that was comprehensible and simple, which it, it's not, it's thousands of pages, and people spend billions and billions and billions of man hours and dollars trying to interpret it, you know, through attorneys and so forth. If you had tax simplification, you would probably have instant better response and instant better compliance, which really less no, rests on Congress. No question about that. But that's not the game we're playing. The game we're playing are the hundreds of thousands of pages of tax law and an audit process that the IRS over the past few years is really broken. The point here, I think, is Congress cutting the ability of the IRS to conduct audits in this current environment, leaves revenue on the table, and is directly contrary to running the government as a business. All right. Well, we'll leave it there and uh, get a link to that report. Bob Tobias is a professor at the Key Executive Leadership Program at American University. You're not emeritus yet. I am. <laughs> well, well, congratulations on that one. It's been a long Thank time you. coming. And uh, But we'll still have you on, and we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, what do people really mean when they say the government should operate like a business? This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. The State Department put a spotlight on one of the Biden administration's top federal workforce priorities when it named its first chief diversity and inclusion officer. The department has since then launched a new fellowship, made changes to how it screens applicants joining the Foreign Service. Now state's chief diversity and inclusion officer is stepping down after more than two years on the job. For a retrospective, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with Ambassador Gina Abercrombie-Winstanley. People talk about DEIA now, not as a mystery or just an annoyance, but something that they want to know where to do it, how to do it. Where should the focus be? I just wrapped up a session with our chief of mission conference that we have every other year. We bring our chiefs of mission from around the world. And I had a packed room of ambassadors talking about DEIA efforts at their missions around the world. Chiefs of mission had some of the ideas, but their staffs on increasing accessibility, increasing inclusion. And so that these ideas are coming from the workforce, and that is a cultural change. We recently heard you speak before the House Foreign Affairs Committee in outlining some of the work that you've been doing. Something that we heard there was the State Department's efforts implementing some of the actions from a recent workforce survey. Can you maybe unpack some of the findings of that survey and where employees are saying action is needed most urgently? Accountability is a huge issue within our organization, and I know our organization is not alone in that. Where people talk about the challenges of doing their best work when they have poor managers, bad management, 
And when they have poor management, what is done about it? Is anyone held to account for bad behavior? And this can be not just general managerial issues, but bullying or harassment. And harassment occurs among protected classes, but it also happens between people of the same demographic background. So it's not something that is necessarily discrimination as defined under the law. Sometimes people are just mean or thoughtless and are not giving the attention to the workforce that they should be giving. And then, of course, there are things you know, like discrimination. So all of those things happen within our organization. We had a sizable number of employees say that they had experienced such uh, behavior in the last five years. I think it was nearly 50%, which is a deeply concerning percentage. And then we had a huge, huge percent. I want to say it was close to 80% who said they did not expect the perpetrators to be held accountable. Well, that's devastating. That's devastating. A news survey just came out a couple of days ago that put the Department of State, unfortunately, in the top four of government agencies where sexual harassment occurs. I think it was 28% of the workforce had dealt with that. So we have some management issues to deal with. So we really wanted to help global talent management get after that. And accountability is huge. So in the positive way for accountability is saying that you will be promoted if you manage well, if you look after all of your staff, not just the ones who remind you of you, with whom you share background or, you know, kindred interest or the same school or hometown or whatever it is, that you need to look at those who aren't like you. And I don't mean just from the same, you know, socioeconomic status or demographic group, but people who share differences. But we're looking for people to be Catholic with a small c in sharing pearls of wisdom and support and development. That as leaders, we expect that of everyone. And to treat people with respect and help them feel included. So those are the things that came across the workforce. We also had the workforce flag that our assignments, our promotions were not transparent and therefore they weren't sure that they were being dealt with in an equitable and above board fashion. And the reality is we are an organization that, you know, diplomacy often depends on contacts, on relationships, trust between each other that allow you to make compromises because you trust the other party. So with so much relational emphasis in the work that we do, it obviously can bleed over into selections and hiring and who you bring on board and who you want to be on your team, but that's not fair. And it does exclude a large group of people within the organization. And I say very frankly, if not diplomatically, every white guy is not in the in crowd. So when we decided to bring transparency to how people get senior assignments, one of the most important ones is a deputy assistant secretary. You can go on to be an ambassador from that, or you can come back from being an ambassador and proudly go be a deputy assistant secretary. It is an extremely important position and one that is a stepping stone for greater responsibility. And we discovered that we did not advertise those positions. You had to be in the know. Somebody had to know and like you and tap you on the shoulder to get you to come and do that job. So we changed that. The workforce said, we don't believe this is equitable. It definitely isn't transparent. We made it transparent. 
And I love that I'm able to say that the first person who came up to me after we changed it, who thanked me for the change, who said, I didn't know about the job. I didn't know anyone in the front office, but I saw it. I knew I could do it. I advocated for myself and I got the job. And then he said, I, you know, I'm sorry, I'm, I might not be in your demographic, but I'm so grateful you made the change. And it allowed me to say, you are in my demographic. The I is inclusion. And that means everybody. And we're not trying to put a new group at the top. We're trying to level the playing field for everyone. And that includes you. Frankly, our level of deputy assistant secretaries, I think, is more diverse since we uh, have been adding people since we changed how people get those jobs. We're leveling the playing field. Helps everybody. You know, one other facet of things, and I know this ties back to a previous conversation we had in your current role, is just the prevalence of promotion boards, that these promotion decisions, they're not left up to a single individual. It's, you know, a broad perspective of uh, points of view to decide who is that best person to have that promotion. Can you give me a sense of how prevalent from your perspective that is as a best practice? And is that moving the needle the way that you would hope it would? I think it's moving the needle, absolutely. As we spread the best practice of hiring panels, uh, we've had promotion panels for a long time. I had the privilege of talking to them about the DEIA precept to help them understand what we're looking for, why it is important. So we've done that work with the promotion panels, but the hiring is important as well, and that it be a panel that it not be just one decision maker who can do that mirroring is the term, you know, finding someone they like that reminds them of themselves. So I can tell you that we'll look at the stats. That's part of what my office will do. We'll be doing bear analyses and data analyses on how the recommendations that we put in place are working. But what I can tell you is that it has built far greater trust and confidence in the decisions, because people know it just wasn't one person making that decision, that there was a panel that every applicant was asked the exact same question. But scoring was done on the applicants and a discussion among the entire panel, not just one person. So it's building trust in the decisions. And that's really important. Ambassador Gina Abercrombie Wynn Stanley, the State Department's retiring Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.